Well, good morning. You know, I'm always fascinated by all these little buttons here. If, like, I pushed one, would it change my voice? That would be really cool. Because I always think I sound like a cartoon character. I'd like to have, like, a big bass voice, but uh, that's a story for another time. Uh, good to be back. Um, last week, uh, one of the missionaries you guys support was here speaking, and so I had the uh, the weekend off from my interim pastor duties. But uh, uh, I've gotten been here for like six months now, and so it's kind of like old home now, right? Get used to everybody and seeing the same faces. And uh, uh, we've been working through the Book of Mark, and, and uh, we're going to continue that today. Um, I've had the privilege in my life of doing, uh, being a graduation speaker a couple of times at high school graduations, doing the commencement address. And, and, and the last one I did, it was really fun because um, it had just been, you know, all those graduates were seated in front, right? And it's always a great, exciting day to graduate from something. And those of us who've graduated ever, and some of us it's been multiple times, it's a great highlight to finish what you've been working on. And so we had just finished all the awards, right? And, and as the commencement speaker, you're usually the last person to go. You have the last word to say to the graduate. And this was high school graduation. They had gone through all the award ceremonies, right? Here's all the championship things you guys won while you're here in sports. Here were the, uh, the, all the award winners for valedictorian and all the different awards. And it's a big buildup, right? And so it's my turn to get up and speak. And I said, this has been amazing. You guys have accomplished so much in this time in high school, and you should be very proud of what you do. And you know, you're seniors, we've seen these awards, you've done amazing things that are, that are recounted in the halls of your high school. But you know what? Tomorrow morning when you wake up, you're freshmen. I, I have this ability to kind of put a damper on people's enthusiasm. You, you've experienced it already in my uh, six months here. And I went on to talk about all these things you've accomplished. When you show up in college, if you're going to college or if you're going to basic training, nobody cares what you accomplished in high school. And you give the commencement address, and it sounds like a cliche, in some ways it is, but it's true that graduation and then commencement isn't the end of anything, it's the beginning of something new. And you're going to wake up tomorrow and nobody's going to... Com- care that you were the uh, the all-state basketball star. They aren't going to care that you were the, the, the best at your position. Now you're on the end of the bench, and you're just hoping and praying that you're going to get play in time, right? Because that's the reality of, of moving into real life and, and moving on from the graduation. It's commencing. It's starting new and, and starting over. We've been working our way through the book of Mark, and if I were to refresh your memory over the last little bit, we we had this moment a few weeks ago where where Jesus was on the road with his disciples, and he turned to them and said, "Uh, who is it people say that I am? Remember that story? And and Jesus, for all of his ministry up to that point, had been telling the disciples that that he is on the scene. He's starting to demonstrate to them that, that he's the Messiah. They haven't gotten it, but he's demonstrated incredible power and incredible glory and incredible acts and taught with authority, right? And, and people were clamoring after him. And he said, who do people say that I am? And, and Peter says, you're the Christ. And, and Jesus acknowledged that's true, but he said, don't tell anyone. And we discovered in that passage that Jesus was saying, you, you use that word, but I don't think you know what it means. Because then Jesus went on to explain that being the Messiah is not coming as a political and military hero that's going to elevate God's chosen people back to their glorious status in the world, but it was a Messiah who is going to suffer and he's going to die. Remember then Peter basically rebuked Jesus and, and took him aside and, and basically was saying, you don't know what you're talking about. Messiahs don't die. Messiahs don't lose. Messiahs win. And, and Jesus made those amazing words to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. 
And then he went on to teach them and, and, and be involved more and more about what does it mean for the Messiah to suffer and die? What does that look like? And they just don't grasp it. And, and the last weekend I was here, uh, two Sundays ago, we had this amazing story where Jesus took three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain. Right? And when they were up there, they saw Jesus transfigured. He, he showed up in this glorious, radiant white. He was shining like lightning. It was like clothes that were whiter than they could possibly be bleached. And there appeared with him Moses and Elijah. Right? And, and, and they were amazed. They had a glimpse of Jesus pulling back the curtain to show these three who he really was. His reality and his eternity. And Peter's response was, let's build some tents. And we discovered that what he was saying is, let's memorialize this. Let's take a picture and remember this and stay here a long time. And Jesus said, that's not the point. Giving you a glimpse into who I am, he talked about this this transfiguration. And we use the term of a transfiguration moment. He wanted us to see him in a new way. And he wants all of us in our daily lives to see him in a new way, to see the world in a new way with new eyes and new ears to hear. And and then they headed down the mountain. And Jesus told them not to tell anybody about what they had seen, but they kept talking about his his words to them about he was going to suffer and then he was going to rise again. And they they were trying to figure out what that meant. And so they're coming down this mountain at this point, and we come to today's passage. And so this really is written from the perspective of coming down the mountain. Right, And it starts in Mark chapter 9, verse 14. It says, when they came to the other disciples, they've come down the mountain. They've been talking about among themselves what's happened and trying to figure out what Jesus means. They saw a large crowd around them and teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, teacher, I brought you my son who was possessed by a spirit that, he, that robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He, He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Immediately the boys, uh, if you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can, only, can come out only by prayer. So put ourselves in this situation. Right, We have Peter, James, and John who have been up on this mountain. They have seen Jesus in a way that nobody else ever had. They have been exposed to the glory of Jesus and his, his eternity. The reality of who really is, the curtain was pulled back for just a moment when they saw something nobody had, and, and it was radical, and it was beyond their imagination. It was unlike anything they could have ever thought. 
And we talked before about up till this time, Jesus had been trying to show everyone that the kingdom of God is here. And he's been saying he's the king. He's tried to show them who he is and, and how their view of the kingdom and the Messiah was upside down from what it should be. He was, he was turning their whole theology upside down. And in the middle of that, they saw this glory and they can recount the amazing things he had done. They can see the number of people he's fed and the people he's healed and the the way he's spoken. They've seen it all and that's their picture now. We have seen something amazing. And then they go down the hill and they encounter their their friends, these other nine disciples who are are basically in this hubbub and this chaos, this cacophony of sound, this disturbance, this defending yourself and arguing and fighting. And and they've just been in this presence of something they can't even explain. And coming out of that, that whole bubble is burst. You, You might say they've gone from graduation to commencement. They've come down from the mountain and now they're in the midst of this chaos and chaos and, and, and people who are opposed to Jesus. That doesn't fit with this picture they just had. We've seen something amazing. This is the Messiah. This is the one. This is awesome. And now we're here in this place of opposition and turmoil and chaos. How do you, how do you wrestle with that? What a, what a distinction. What extremes they're experiencing just in a very short time. What, what do you do with that? And Jesus says, so, so what's going on? Why, why this arguing? And then before the disciples could answer, this, this man steps in and says, I brought my son to you, but, but your disciples can do anything. And we have to stop for a moment and say, that was interesting terminology. I brought my son to you. But we know Jesus wasn't there when they brought the son. They, he brought him to the disciples. And we discovered several weeks ago, remember when, when Jesus, for the first time, sent his disciples out, and, and it said he gave them authority to, to cast out demons and to, and to preach with authority. And, and they were successful. Remember when we talked about this idea, when it, the terminology he gave them authority was this legal term. They, they were his representatives. In other words, where they went, it was the same as when Jesus went. They were supposed to wear his name well. Where, where they showed up, people would assume it was the same as Jesus because the, the pupil reflects the teacher. It was the mindset of the day. And so they were, they were sent out. They were sent out with authority. And so when this man comes and says, I brought my, my son to you, that's what he thought. But these disciples weren't even a pale, imaginary comparison. They completely missed the mark. And so they scrambled to Jesus and, and said, this is what happened. And Jesus turned and said to, I think, his disciples, you, you unbelieving generation. Right? Because what have we experienced in this whole first half of the book of Mark is the failure of the disciples. Remember, they just, they just keep falling short. They, they don't get it and they try again. And Jesus in his unending patience keeps telling them and keeps teaching them and keeps pulling them along, but they don't get it. You unbelieving generation, how long will I be with you? And this is a statement of he knows his time with them is short. There's so little time but so much to teach and so much that you have to learn. How long will I be with you, you, you unbelieving generation? And, and, but then he didn't keep chastising them. He turned and said, and he healed the boy. He cast out the spirit, right? And it was this, this amazingly triumphant thing. Now, if we turn around and look at this scenario from the point of view of these other nine disciples, right? So Jesus and Peter and James and John had headed off, and you don't know where. Right, But you do know that as you're waiting and whatever you're doing, Jesus may have given them some directions to do something. We don't know. It doesn't say. But they were there, and, and they had previously gone out. 
in, in Jesus' name, with his authority, and they had been successful in all kinds of endeavors. It says they cast out demons. They, they, had, they had preached. They had taught. They would healed. They had done the things Jesus gave them authority to do. And while they're there, people started clamoring after them. And, and this, this man comes with his demon-possessed son saying, can you heal him? Banking on their previous success, they said, yeah, we got this. But then it, it didn't work. It, it didn't happen. They, they weren't able to, to help this man and his son. They couldn't cast out the demon. And you know they're probably starting to wonder why. And as they can't do it, the crowd is probably getting bigger. And, and it says the scribes and teachers of the law started coming by, right? And these are people who had it out for Jesus already. And so any ammunition they can get against Jesus is good. So Jesus' disciples, who are his representatives, can't accomplish what Jesus would have. So what's wrong with you? What? And so you can just see this escalating, right? You can just feel the pressure going on as people keep asking, why, 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 why? And you're trying to defend yourself. And you're arguing with yourself and with them. And, and all this time, and then all of a sudden Jesus shows up and people go, there's Jesus, let's go there. And, and you're just left in this place. What, 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 what wrong? What, what happened? And then Jesus looks at you and says, you're an unbelieving generation and you failed again. And he cast the demon out. And, the, and Jesus said, how long has the boy been like this? And says, since childhood, the spirits tried to kill him. And then Jesus, you know, he, he, the man looks at Jesus and says, "If your disciples, I brought him to your disciples, they couldn't do anything. They didn't have the power to do it with literal language there. They didn't have the power. And he says, if, if you can. And Jesus says, if? If I can? And he makes this amazing statement, everything is possible for one who believes. Now, now this is a, a key point in this passage, and this is also a passage, a simple little phrase that has been greatly abused in the history of the church. Everything is possible for those who believe. And that's somehow been twisted around over time to say, if you have just enough faith, your faith can accomplish whatever you want it to accomplish. If you do this, then miraculous things can happen, but it's up to you. And there's an element that Jesus is saying, this isn't about my ability, it's about your belief. But, but we, we miss the point if we're seeing this as a statement of, if you have enough, have enough, we'll do what you ask it to do. And, and there's a whole theological tradition that kind of goes down that path. But, but we don't see something going on here with, this man had this tremendous amount of faith, and the amount of faith he had translated into something miraculous. This was Jesus saying, if you believe, you will not put a limit on what is possible with God. He is not saying your faith will do something miraculous. It does not mean faith can accomplish anything, but that those who have faith will not put a limit on what God can do. Do you get the distinction? It may sound a little, it's a tough one. This isn't, if you have enough faith, your faith can move that mountain. Your faith can accomplish that miraculous thing. It's no, if you believe, you're not going to put a limit on what God can accomplish. Because it's about God doing things and God acting. And, and here's where it gets a little challenging because this man wanted his son healed. And Jesus chose to heal his son, to cast out these demons. And, and said when the demons went out, that the demon had one last effort at destruction. And when he left, it looked like the boy was dead. And, and the, once again, the literal language here is lifting, and it has this sense of reviving and bringing to life. 
We get into trouble when we say, Jesus, I have faith that you're going to give me this particular new job I want. And I must not have enough faith because you're not giving me that new job. Or, or I want to be cured of this illness, so I, I must not have enough faith. Or you would do this because your, your word says that for those who believe, anything is possible. And so I've dictated the outcomes that I want, and I don't have enough faith, I guess. What you're actually doing in those kind of situations is limiting God. We're asking for a miracle. God says, you're limiting me by saying what I have to do. It says, those who believe will trust and understand that God can do and might do anything, and it's beyond what we can imagine. It isn't just defined by the way we just defined it for him. It's a... It's a challenging distinction because it's easy to say the faith is something I have and that I can control. And if I have enough of it, then God is required to do something for me. If I have enough belief, anything is possible. Whereas if I believe in Jesus in whom everything is possible, I don't want to limit what that could look like. And it might be absolutely something beyond what I could have ever thought of. It might be something strictly internal in how he's changed me but that's just as miraculous. It's a fascinating, pivotal point in this passage. And the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Which tells us this isn't about achieving some level of faith and belief. He's basically said, I'm a doubter. But in my doubt, I believe. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. If you can. This isn't about Jesus' ability, but it's about people understanding that those who believe do not place limits on God. Well, then we, we move to this thing that where, where the, the crowd was running after him, right? And so he, he cast out the, the, the thing, the, the demon, and then they, they went into a house. And, and this is kind of normal in Jesus' relations with his, his disciples as he gets away. And they, they now come to find out some more information. And they come to him in the house after all this has happened, and his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? Once again, we we were given this authority before. What happened this time? And if we, once again, look into that history and that culture, there was an idea uh, that if somebody was a magician or had some kind of spiritual power, whether it was real or not, that there was this sense that that came about by reciting the right kind of words and doing the right kind of activities. And so if you're looking and saying, why we couldn't we do it? I think the disciples actually wanted to learn something. They were coming because something had gone wrong. They wanted to learn something. But they were thinking of it as a, as a technique. Where did we get the technique wrong? Did we say the wrong words? Did we not do something right? Help us so that we can do this again. How did we come up short on this? And Jesus said, this kind can come out only by prayer. It doesn't about technique. You didn't mess up the words. You didn't do something the right way according to the manual, or you could have, because they out before with authority. I think they really thought that the authority God gave them was something that they could control, that they could utilize, that they could see it as strictly pragmatic, and that it was something they could control. We have this power that came from God. It is at our disposal, but we just somehow messed up the words. It says, this can come out only by prayer. But we stop and look at the story and say, well, I don't see anything in here where Jesus prayed for this to happen. He just commanded the Spirit. 
And so we really have to understand more about the whole context of prayer in the Bible and, and relate it to earlier when it's talking about belief. Belief and prayer go hand in hand. Prayer not as an activity so much as prayer as an enduring relationship with God. And it's ongoing. And it's about closeness. You know, when the stories of when Jesus went to be alone, when he needed to spend time with his father, the way he prayed to Father, Abba, that's relational conversation. This is about a relationship with God, not a technique to be mastered. He, he said, you need to pray. This kind comes only out by prayer. You, you have to walk in this life with me, knowing me intimately in this give and take. We have, we have passages in Scripture that talks about pray without ceasing. Now, that's not a statement that says you walk through your life always mumbling prayers and words. It, it's pray without ceasing. It's an ongoing give and take in life. Uh, we, uh, it's more like the idea uh, we, protect, we pray continually. And the word continual means it's kind of like how a phone rings. I mean, old phones. New phones ring differently. But it rings and it stops and it rings and it stops and it rings. It's continual, not continuous. In other words, as things are triggered during the day, we pray. And we respond and we seek God and we ask for help and, and clarification. We seek forgiveness and we confess and we praise and we, we show gratitude. And it's, that's this on-again thing all through the day. It's continual. It's an it's a enduring relationship with God. Jesus is saying, you, you, you couldn't handle this because you, you, didn't, you don't have this relationship with me, you unbelieving generation. We've, we've seen these things, and what's interesting is from this point forward, what we're going to start learning is what does it mean, what does it look like to have that enduring, ongoing relationship with God? And it's so related to the, the man's statement about, I believe, help my unbelief. This, this kind comes out only through prayer. Prayer and belief, prayer and belief, they, they, they go together. There, there's another really incredible pivotal point in this. We mentioned it briefly. <clears throat> When, when this man says, I brought my son to you, right? And he really brought it to the disciples. If we really ponder and think about this, this is an implicating statement. Because how often in life when somebody comes to us for help or, or for insight, we, we, we think, I got this. I have what you need. I, I can help you. When in reality, this man was coming to Jesus. You, you were just the instrument that was there at the moment. They, they were, when, they, when people come for help, they're really coming to Jesus. So how do we enter into that life? The, the long-term consulting um, job I just completed at a basic needs organization where, where we, I ran a food bank and helped with emergency assistance with food and utilities and rent and that kind of stuff. But basically my day-to-day life was involved in sitting down across from somebody and hearing their story. Working with homeless people and, and low-income families and, and hearing their stories. And some of the stories are devastating. And it's really interesting or really, really uh, easy to sit in those situations and hear the story and go, I have the help you need You're about to be evicted, and I have the money that can stop you from being evicted. Wow, that that is a very powerful place to be in. But if I recognize that these people are not coming for help for me, deep down, whether they know it or not, they are asking for Jesus' help. How, How do I address them? That's a very different place to be. 
The, the problem is when these, these people came to Jesus, came to the disciples for help, the disciples saying, we have this, we can control this, we were given this power by God, we can fix it. And they couldn't. Because the people weren't coming to them, they were coming to Jesus. Now, now think about how that would alter the way we live our life every day. If we, if we stop and in our striving to have and imbibing to live in that place of belief, and by believing we are placing no limits on what God can do. When somebody comes to us and we interact with somebody, if we're thinking deep down, they are not coming to me for help, they're coming to Jesus. Man, that should transform how we live every day. This isn't about me, this is about Jesus. This isn't about what, what I can offer, but what Jesus can offer. And, and I, I'm just the one that's here in this moment on Jesus' behalf. That, that is a radical way of living. And, and this whole passage, uh, even though we have the story of this healing, we have the story of all this stuff going on, it was really about the failure of the disciples and it was about the opportunity for them to learn. These were teaching moments about faith and belief and what God can do and about entering into people's lives, not because you can control it, but because they need Jesus. That, that's a completely different way of living. You see, bottom line, this is a story, once again, about the disciples' failure. And, and, and in reality, failure, the good thing about failure is that it's a learning opportunity. Jesus, in his ongoing patience with his disciples, say, let's try this again. It's, it's why we've entitled this entire series on the book of Mark, Great Beginnings. Because Jesus is all about fresh starts. You didn't get it that time. Let's try it again. Let's let's see what happens from here on out. How can your life be changed? How can you understand more? And let's start again. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. That's that's the story of life with Christ. It's one of failure and missing the point and, and great successes and amazing opportunities and experiences and starting over and learning again. You see, failure can teach us how utterly dependent we are on God. Why couldn't we cast out this demon? The emphasis on the we. Why weren't we able to do it? Why couldn't we make this happen? Why couldn't we make our church grow? Why couldn't we do the right thing? Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we? Why couldn't we? And Jesus says, you don't have a close enduring relationship with me. It's about their coming to Jesus, not coming to you. And how does that radically transform our day-to-day life? See, just like the disciples, we are beset by failure. We're too ready to engage in arguments. We're undisciplined in our prayer life. We're more eager to learn techniques than to take time to walk closely with God. And we are feeble and fragile on our own. That's what this passage is about. The disciples didn't get it. And Jesus says, by trusting in your own control, your own understanding, thinking that if you just have enough faith, something can happen, instead of saying Jesus is the one. We're missing the point, and we're we're prone to arguments. You can just see that taking place with the disciples. Why couldn't you cast them out? Why couldn't you? Why couldn't you? And they're getting defensive, and they're arguing, because that's what you do. That's what we do when we're in the midst of those moments. We don't understand what we need in Christ. And when we interpret them coming to us as we now can control it. And we like control. 
all wrapped around this is this, this father's statement. I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. A really well-known scripture passage. It, it was a plea for help. I believe, which, which is belief, but then he says, help my unbelief, which sounds like doubt. And, and he basically says, Jesus, Jesus, I believe. And I'm a doubter. And Jesus stepped into his life and did something amazing for this man just as he was. And what he was was a doubter. And we're all there. His doubt and his amount of faith was in repentance. It was in prayer. It was in this sense of relationship. And, and that, that's a prayer we need every day. Lord, I believe. I, I do not want to put a limit onto who you are and what you can do. And I doubt. I believe and I doubt. I believe, help my unbelief. Wow, what a repentant, humble way to live life. And that's commended by Jesus. That's so very different than the disciples. Why couldn't we cast it out? This kind can come out only by prayer. Only by an enduring, ongoing relationship with God. Wow. This is is a powerful passage. Again, it's coming from the mountaintop. This is coming from graduation where we've seen something amazing nobody does and now we have to step into chaos where we have been shown for who we really are. And Jesus invites us to believe in the midst of our unbelief to see his amazing ability to do anything beyond what we can imagine and says, join me in that by believing. Don't put a limit on me. Don't define the outcome of what has to happen and then expect me to meet it. Believe that I can do anything and then let's live life. And when you encounter people, don't see it as you have the control and what they need, but see it as Jesus. This this is the story that we're embarking on. It's an exciting story. Because once again, this shows us we, we can live and revel in and remember the glory of the mountain. But we live in this valley where there's chaos and opposition. And Jesus says those things go hand in hand for those who believe, for those who pray, for those who have a close, ongoing, enduring relationship with God. Let's pray together.